Have you noticed? Every year when we get the first uh, somewhat significant snow, everybody says, it's snowing. You're in Canada. What do you think? Every year we do the same thing. You listen to the radio. And the announcer is always saying, people, slow down. It's snowing. It's no longer summer. Well, it's snowing. And snow time is a great season, just like all of the other seasons that we have in Canada. Well, I'm so happy to be here with you today. It's been uh, six months since I've had the opportunity to uh, preach. It's been a year since I've had the opportunity to stand up in front of people and, and speak in front of people like this. The church where I was at, we went back to Zoom in January just like everybody else did. So it's, it's great to be able to see your eyes and not just to be speaking to this computer screen. I'm speaking to a screen here, but at least it's transparent and I can see you through the screen. So I'm, I'm really delighted to be here. We had uh, supper last night with the leaders and had a great time getting to know one another. And uh, this morning, here we are, before God and before his word. I like to pray. Father God, we confess that there are times when we come to your word and our hearts are hard. Hearts are hard. We have other things on our mind that distract us. We pray, Father, that during this time, you would soften our hearts, open our minds, open our lives to hear your word, what you want to say to each one of us. You know the situations that we come from. You know the cares and you know the joys that we bring here this morning. We open our hearts to you and the work of your spirit. Amen. Preparation is a part of life. We were in a park, wow, just a few weeks ago, and the leaves were turning colors. And we loved to walk through, through the maple bush and look at all the leaves turning colors. Just a week later, we went back to the same bush, and those leaves had fallen down onto the ground. Now, I don't know about you, but what I love to do, my wife and I, is shuffle through those maple leaves. Do you know the sound that it makes? We say that it's a rustle, but it's, it's not a rustle. It's more like a shh, 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 You ever done that? You guys, you got to go back to kidhood, you know? Got to get back to being children. I did that as a kid. I do it as an adult all the time now. And as you shuffle through these leaves, you get this smell. It's probably just the dust. But for me, it's a special smell that comes from shuffling through the maple leaves that have fallen onto the ground. Why does that happen? You probably know. If you don't, I'm going to tell you. Why do the leaves turn color? Well, as the daylight gets shorter. Now, when I grew up, I was told, wow, you need a good frost to get nice-looking maple leaves. That is not true. As the daylight gets shorter, what happens is um, the tree gets the signal that the sap needs to return from the leaves back to the roots. And when the sap returns from the leaves to the roots, it takes the chlorophyll with it. The chlorophyll is what makes the leaves green. And so when the chlorophyll is drawn back from the leaves and it goes to the roots in the sap, then the leaves start to show their natural color. And that's when you get the bright orange and the bright red and the bright yellow. What's happening? The tree is preparing for winter. Preparation is a part of life. 
There's a park close to us, about 10 minutes away, Mount St. Bruno Park. We live on the sort of the south, south edge of uh, South Shore, Montreal. So we're close to this provincial park. And in the middle of the park, there are three ponds. Well, lakes. Let's call them lakes because they're like bigger. And the geese like to come to these lakes in the winter, or in the fall, rather. And you'll see hundreds of geese bobbing on the water if you go for a walk around the lake. And then every once in a while, a group of geese will take off, honking all the way. They run in the top of the water, they take off, they fly around the lake, and they come back, and they land on the water. And sometimes, one or two of the geese will do head over heels in the water. So what's happening? Some of those geese were just born in the spring. And so they are preparing they're preparing, they're learning to take off, they're learning to fly in formation, they're learning to land on the water. What are they preparing for? Well, they're preparing for migration because preparation is a part of life. We see that in God's creation, but we see it in our lives as well. Think about it. Preparation is a part of life. Preparing. You prepare for work. You prepare for school if you're a student. You prepare the kids to go to school. You prepare um, a project that you're presenting at work, maybe a project that you're presenting at school. And this time of year, if any of your students at university or college, what are you doing? Preparing for exams. Preparation is a part of life. But is it possible that we're missing the most important preparation at this time of year with all the other preparing that we need to do. This time of year is Advent. So this morning, we had the candle lit. It was great to see a family come up and do this together. Advent means coming. It's a time when we celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, in the form of a helpless baby. Amazing. Incredible. That God would come in the flesh in the form of a helpless baby. But that's what we remember, that coming of Jesus. But that's not all. We remember that Jesus said he will come again. There will be another advent. And so during this time, during this season, we remember that Jesus came among us, God in the flesh, as a little baby, grew to be a man, and that he will come again. That's what he promised. That's what he said he would do. That's what we remember during this advent time. I think our preparation needs to be intentional. If we are going to prepare well to celebrate the birth of Christ. But how do we do that? I mean, how do we prepare well during this Advent time to celebrate the birth of Christ? Well, we can look at the story of John the Baptist found in Luke chapter 3. Because the purpose that John had in his life was to prepare for the Messiah who was going to come. And in Luke chapter 3, we have the story of John uh, up, to chapter, up to verse 20. And then in 21, it continues on with the story of Jesus. This is Luke telling the story. And John is preparing people for the Messiah who is coming and soon to be among them. Prepare the way of the Lord is a central statement in this passage, Luke 3, 1 to 20. So how can we prepare the way of the Lord in our hearts and in our lives this season? That's the question we're going to keep in the back of our minds as we come to this passage and work through the passage. Let me say, first of all, that preparing is rooted 
in our current reality. Preparing is rooted in our current reality. John's ministry is rooted in history. John 3 verses 1 to 3 shows the historical context of John the Baptist. Let's read those verses. Luke chapter 3, starting at verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan. That's John. That's John's current reality. Well, Luke starts with the name of seven leaders, five political leaders and two religious leaders. He starts with Caesar, of course. Uh, this is the time of Rome and the Caesar's reign. And if we look at what he says here in this verse, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, then we're looking at about the year 29 AD, give or take a year. But that can be pinpointed to that. And then John or Luke gives these other leaders as well, secular leaders that are there. Uh, Roman governor Pontius Pilate, uh, three tetrarchs. Well, a tetrarch is a person who reigns over one quarter of an area. So at the birth of Jesus Christ, Herod the Great reigned over all of this area. There was one leader, and it was Herod. He called himself Herod the Great. And Herod the Great died sometime after the birth of Jesus, a few years after the birth of Jesus. And so his territory was divided. And as it was divided, the Romans decided that they'd had enough of someone local claiming themselves to be king over all this area. King Herod, by the way, called himself king of the Jews. He wasn't even a Jew. But he called himself king of the Jews. Well, the Romans decided they'd had enough of that. The territory broke up and they installed a governor who was Pontius Pilate. So we have these leaders and then we have two high priests. Isn't that interesting? I mean, you have priests, but usually there's one high priest. Well, here's what happened. Annas was the priest until the year 15 AD. And the Romans decided that, well, he didn't work well enough with them. So they deposed him. They kicked him out of his office and they put Caiaphas, his son-in-law, in the office of high priest at, the same, uh, at that time. So now, as far as the Jews are concerned, there are two high priests. There's Annas, who is still, as far as they're concerned, the high priest, but Caiaphas, who is the official high priest. So Luke gives us these historical uh, details. Luke wants us to know that the story he is telling is a story rooted in history. This is a real story. This is the truth. What he's saying about John the Baptist, what he's about to say about John the Baptist, this is rooted in history. This isn't some story that Luke made up. It's rooted in history. And the story he's going to continue to tell about Jesus, about Jesus being a man, about his ministry, about his death on the cross, about his, his burial, and about his resurrection... Luke has given us a heads up right here. This is reality, people. This is truth. This is rooted in history. All of it. 
And so Luke gives us the current reality of John, the context of these, of these uh, leaders, but also we read a little further that he's the son of Zechariah. Well, Luke has already told us that Zechariah had this vision in the temple. And because of this vision in the temple, as an old man told that by the angel that he's going to have a son, he doesn't believe, and so he can't speak for nine months. The angel says, okay, well, you're not going to speak. You'll know that I've told you the truth. That's the Zacharias. This is the John. Do you see what Luke is doing? This is the John that we're talking about. He's a real person at a real time, and he lives in the wilderness. This is John's current reality where the preparation for the coming of the Messiah is taking place. Well, our current reality is different, but it's just as important. Preparing is rooted in current reality. Your current reality, my current reality. Preparing is rooted in our particular and personal history. Preparation, that preparing for the way of the Lord must be more than an idea, more than a dream, more than just a religious concept. It needs to come home to us here and now as we look forward to celebrating the birth of Jesus, Messiah. And preparing must be intentional. One of the ways that we can prepare is by celebrating Advent, which has happened here this morning. Maybe some of you are doing this at home. We are certainly in the habit of doing this at home. Our little children loved it, seeing the candles lit, even when they were very small. It appealed to them. But year after year, as we celebrated Advent together, preparing our hearts to celebrate the coming of Jesus, we were teaching our children about the importance of Advent, the importance of looking for the Messiah, of looking for Jesus. And so celebrating Advent together, maybe you do it at home, you light the candles, you do the scripture readings, maybe you look at a uh, devotional, that is a good start. Celebrating Advent together is one of the ways that we can prepare our hearts and prepare our lives. Uh, okay, so maybe someone says, well, why do I need this? Jesus has already come. You know, why do we need this Advent thing? Or maybe, maybe someone says, I don't have time to do this. You don't know my schedule. You're right. I don't know your schedule, but I'll bet you're all really busy. But I have a question for you. What's important to you? Because you know what I notice, and I'm sure you notice as well, we find time for things that are important, don't we? You find time to eat. You find time to go to work. If you're a student, you find time to go to school. You find time to do your studies. We find time to do the things that are important to us. So what's most important to you? That's the question. You will find time for what is important. So here's the point. Just like the people at the time of John need to prepare their hearts and their lives for the coming of the Messiah, we need to do that preparation as well. We need to take this time. We need Advent, all of us, to take this time to prepare our hearts to remember the coming of Jesus Christ. You know, our lives are such 
they're on such a fast track. We get the commercial input all the time, the flyers that come in the mail, the advertisements on the radio, on the television, on the mall. What are they telling you to do? What do they say is your purpose? Your purpose, people, according to them, is to make sure the merchants don't go out of business. Your purpose is to spend money, get stuff. But is that really your purpose? No. No, we know that is not our purpose. We need to slow down. We need to stop. We need to remember. And that's what we do during Advent. Preparing our hearts for the coming of Jesus Christ as followers of Jesus. That's what this season is all about. Well, John is going to give us some practical ideas a little later in the passage about what this might look like. But preparing is rooted in our current reality. Well, also, uh, preparing is getting the message right. Preparing is getting the message right. But before we continue the story of John the Baptist, I want to make something very clear. This is not a self-help message. This is not a self-help sermon. And in fact, in my opinion, the Bible is not a self-help book. You can get lots of self-help books. We live in the era of self-help books. You need to improve something, you'll find a book in the library. You'll find a book at the bookstore. Go on Amazon. You'll find a self-help book for anything. And a lot of them are very helpful. But this is not a self-help sermon. And the Bible, the Bible's not a self-help book. The good news is never a self-help book message. You can't do it yourself, no matter how much information you have. Well, Paul gives us the basics of the good news in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, according to scriptures, Jesus died uh, for our sins. He was buried and he rose again, according to scripture. That's the basics of the gospel. When we start to understand the message of the gospel, the good news, here's what we start to understand. Like when we really get it, I can't save myself. If I buy a heap of self-help books like this, when you really get the gospel, you know I can't save myself. But God can save me. That's good news. I can't save myself, but God can save me. I mean, we can shorten it like this. I can't, but God can Okay, audience participation time. I want to know that you're still here, all right? I want you to repeat this after me. I can't, but God can. Let's do it now. Ready? I can't, but God can. Good start. One more time. I can't, but God can. Now, I want you to remember that as I keep going, and I want you to remember that as you listen to any sermon, and as you come to the Bible and read the Bible, I want you to remember that. I can't, but God can. That is the gospel. Well, preparation is getting the message right. So what is John's message? Let's read verse 3 to 6. And John went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, 
the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. First of all, John has a word from the Lord. Now, we need to realize how significant that is. It's been 450 years since anybody in Israel has had a word from the Lord. The prophets have been silent for 450 years. But now God is giving his word. John has a word from the Lord. And, and of course, people don't yet know it. But God has given his word in the flesh, Jesus. God is speaking again. And God is speaking not to those political rulers. God is not speaking to those religious rulers. God is speaking to John, some guy way out in the wilderness. You wouldn't want to have lunch with him because he eats honey and locusts. He stays out there by himself, except when crowds come to him. And that is the one to whom the word of the Lord has come, the fringe guy, the outsider. He receives the word of the Lord. And John is calling people to forgiveness of sins and to repentance. And he's asking them to show that they really understand his message by being baptized. Well, let's look at it. Forgiveness of sins. We'll start at the, at the end and work back. Forgiveness of sins implies that you understand that you've done wrong things. You don't need forgiven if you haven't done anything wrong. Forgiveness of sins implies, demands that you know that you have done wrong things. Being saved demands that you know you need a savior. That probably seems kind of evident to you, but most people around you don't get that. That's not where they're at. They don't see that need. But forgiveness of sins means you understand that you have missed the mark of God's perfection. That's what it means to sin. And as a result, we need forgiveness. We need a savior. We need to realize, I can't, but God can. I was seven years old when I started to understand this. I was part of a club called a Good News Club. A little friend of mine invited me to go to his place after school because his mother was running this club called a Good News Club, run by Child Evangelism Fellowship. And uh, at part of what we did at the club was we memorized verses. We did lots of other things, which as an adult, I think they must have been more fun. But as a child, I really don't remember having a hard time memorizing. So I was memorizing these verses. And one of the verses that I was memorizing was John 3.16. Hey, you probably know it. You know what? During one football season, the most Googled verse of the Bible was John 3.16, because remember that football player had a tattooed across his forehead? Oh, maybe you don't. Anyhow, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, I was memorizing that as a kid, John 3.16, and it just started to become clear. God spoke to my heart, to my inner self. And I realized that God loved me. It became so personal. And that he gave his son Jesus for me. And I didn't know what eternal life was, but it sounded good because I wanted that too. When you're seven, what does eternal life mean? 
But God opened up my heart and my life through memorizing John 3, 16, a verse that just that expresses God's love. It expresses God's word to us. It expresses the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so next time I went to the uh, club meeting, it was once a week, I stayed behind and I talked to my friend's mother and told her what was happening and she led me in a simple prayer. I can't remember exactly what that prayer was, but just a simple prayer like, you know, Jesus, I know that I have sinned, I've done wrong things, and I ask you to forgive me. Jesus, will you come into my life and Jesus, lead me in your way. And that was the beginning of a journey that I'm still on as a journey with Jesus. It starts with understanding our need for forgiveness of sins. Well, the message is also a message of repentance. Now, okay, repent and repentance are not words we use a lot in our language today. But repentance means you're going this way. You have a change of mind, a change of perspective, and you turn around and you go a different direction. It's that simple. That's what repent means. A change of mind that brings a change of direction in your life. You're going this way and you repent. And you turn around and you go a different direction. Well, John is preaching this repentance. He's preaching and, and telling people that they need to have a different way of seeing things, see things in a different way. So where do you get this different way of seeing things? Well, when you give your life to Jesus, he comes into your life and he just changes the way you see things. You start to see things the way he sees things. He gives you a new life, a new way of seeing life, a new way of living life. And sometimes repentance brings radical change into your life. Sometimes it's slower. John is calling people to think in a different way of putting God and his coming Messiah first in their lives. So he's preaching forgiveness of sin. He's preaching repentance and then there's baptize. Baptize means to plunge, to dip, to immerse. And John was immersing people in the Jordan River. That's why he's hanging around the Jordan River. That's part of his ministry, to baptize people. Baptism is an outward, it's a symbol. So it's an outward sign of an inward reality. Okay, a symbol, an outward sign of an inward reality. The baptizing that he's doing, and I mean that we do in our churches, is an outward symbol of an inward reality. So the people needed to understand forgiveness of sins. They needed to, to uh, commit to walk in the way of repentance. And then John was baptizing them because it showed that that's what they wanted to do. This was one of the practical ways of, of showing their repentance. Well, John gives us some practical ways to prepare the way of the Lord. Skip down to verse 10. Because all of this is happening, and there are some people, many people, it says the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? What then shall we do? And you know what John says? He says, be generous, be honest, be content. Let's read what he said, what's happening here. So verse 10, and the crowds asked John, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. 
Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Okay, well, when you first read this, you think, well, I'm not a tax collector. Well, maybe someone is. Maybe someone works for the tax department. In the church that I just left, one of the men worked for the tax department, and we always teased him that he was a tax collector in the biblical sense. But he wasn't. Because at the time of John, they were very different. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Be generous. Verse 11. Well, John, John says, if you have a tunic, give it away. What's a tunic means? It means an undershirt, a camisole. So at that time, you normally just needed one. Now, you could disagree with that now. That's fine. But in that society, you generally needed only one undershirt. But if you had the money, you might have two. You might have more than that. And John says, if you have two, give one away. Why? Because someone else doesn't have any. They have no undershirt. Be generous is what he's saying to everyone. And whoever has food, well, if you know someone doesn't have food, then do likewise. In our conversations, my conversations with, with various people from this congregation, I see that you do this. You are being generous, giving food to a food bank, um, helping with the uh, seniors' homes, to the uh, ministry of the people who are in those seniors' homes, with the women's shelter. These are the kinds of things. It's be generous. You're being generous as a congregation. How can you be generous also as an individual? That's something for you to think about. How can you be generous today? How can you be generous this week as you walk around the streets of Ottawa? And be honest. Well, tax collectors were notorious scoundrels. Tax collectors were appointed by Rome. So they were considered traitors because they worked for Rome. They did get a salary for what they did. But they were allowed to collect as much as they could and they collected as much as they could. And they'd give the allotted amount to their superior and keep all the rest for themselves. So John says to tax collectors, be honest. It's interesting that he doesn't say, leave your job. And for soldiers as well. Soldiers were tempted to abuse their power to supplement their income. And John says, be content with what you have. Again, notice that John doesn't say to the soldiers and the tax collectors, Leave your job. He's telling them to act in a very different way in their jobs. Be generous, be honest, <clears throat> be content. Our commercial industry feeds us discontent. You know that, right? All the flyers you get are meant to make you discontent. The messages at the mall, on the radio, etc., they're made to make you discontent. We are fed discontent. And John, in his message to the people of that time and to us, says, be content. Repentance for them took place in the context of their current reality. This is a practical way of preparing the way of the Lord. Be generous, be honest, be content. Preparing is getting the message right. So what's the summary of the message again? I can't but God can. I can't save myself, but God can save me. 
Preparing is rooted in our current reality. Preparing is getting the message right. And preparing requires decision. You know, many people responded well to John's message. Many of them truly did uh, find that forgiveness of sins from God. They found repentance and they were baptized. Many, many who came to him responded well to his message, but not everybody did. For instance, there's Herod. Skip down to verse 19. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to all of them, he locked John up in prison. Here's what's happening. Herodias is married to Philip, Herod's brother. Herod goes to visit. He really likes Herodias. He somehow convinces her to leave his brother and to come back with him to his territory and marry him. Well, John heard about it, and John confronted Herod and told Herod, this is not right. And Herod didn't like that message. Herod didn't like John's message. And so Herod responded by having John thrown in prison. Preparing requires decision. Today, many people reject the message of the good news. I hope you're not among them. Many people reject the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. And many people, like Herod, they think, well, I don't need a savior or salvation. Herod liked his life. Especially now, he's got the new wife, and he's got the power, he has the authority. Herod likes his life. He doesn't want change. He figures he's good enough, things are good enough. And you know, the, I'm sure you've heard people say, well, I'm good enough. Or you've heard the expression, I'm as good as the next guy. Well, how good is the next guy? Depends who you live beside, right? I'm good enough. But how good is good enough? Okay, let's think about it this way. Let's think about a goodness scale. And on our goodness scale, zero is the floor. And the ceiling is 100 on the goodness scale. Who would you put down low on the goodness scale? Think about it. Who would you put low down on the goodness scale? Well, um, maybe a serial killer. We'll give him number five. You're thinking, what, number five? Yeah, because you know what? Amazingly, there is goodness in every person because we're made in the image of God. That image is broken, but there's still something there. And so, there are stories of men who have been serial killers who are good husbands and they're good fathers, but they're out killing people. Number five. All right, so up, up, up on the goodness scale, who can you think of that is, well, good? Our society would certainly say uh, Mother Teresa is good. So Mother Teresa is up there on the goodness scale, or Billy Graham did a lot of good. He's up there on the goodness scale. Let's say 85 because you know what? No one is perfect. You're not. I'm not. And they weren't. So 85. Well, where do you put yourself on the goodness scale? Now, don't say this out loud. Just think about it. And don't rate your spouse. You're just rating yourself, okay? Where are you on the goodness scale? They have 50, 60, 70, you know. Well, here's the problem. We think of the goodness scale as zero on the floor and a hundred up at the ceiling. But for God, the sky is the limit. 
And so our goodness is never good enough compared to the goodness of God. I can't, but God can. I can't save myself, but God can save me. And that's the message for every one of us today. Many of you are followers of Jesus Christ, and you need to be reminded that when you came to Christ, that was the reality you experienced. I can't, but God can. And you need to be reminded that's how we, that's how we live with Jesus. Knowing that I can't, but he can. You see, there is nothing we can do to make God love us more. And there's nothing we've done that will make God love us less. That is the gospel. And nothing less. There is nothing we can do to make God love us more. There's nothing we have done that makes him love us less. I can't but God can. And coupled with that is this reality. The God who loves you so much that he sent his son to the cross to die for your sins loves you too much to leave you in your sin. And so he works in your life. When you come to Jesus and Jesus comes into your life, he works in your life to make you more like Jesus. And it's grace all the way. It's by grace that you come to know him. It's by grace that you live and grow in Jesus. That's the good news. And it's as we reflect on that, think about that, that we are preparing our hearts and our lives and our minds to celebrate the coming of Jesus into the world. God in the flesh the form of a little baby. Let's pray together. So how has God spoken to you this morning? As I've been preparing, I was praying, and before preaching, I've been praying that God would speak to your hearts. How has God spoken to you this morning? There are so many ways that God could speak. Hear his voice, listen to him, and follow him. You know, if you're here this morning and you haven't made that step of coming to Jesus that I did when I was seven, it's not that it's complicated, it's just it involves your whole self. But maybe you would like to pray a prayer like that, and I want to just lead you in that prayer if that's where you're at this morning. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I've done wrong things. I have sinned. Forgive me my sin. Jesus, come into my life. Take over my life. And give me your new life. Amen.